Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation. Coming at you from Jersey City in the great state of New Jersey in Studio A. I'm happy to be here. Really happy you've chosen to join me, whether it's live now on uh, January 30, 2023, or if you're sometime in the future. Either way, welcome. Thank you for choosing to spend some time with me and our guest this evening. I have a really interesting interview to share with you this evening. Tori Bosch, who has a new book out. Tori is the editor of a new book called You Are Not Expected to Understand This, How 26 Lines of Code Changed the World. And the 26 is important, the 26 lines of code, because as you will hear in the interview, the book is a compilation of short essays, 26 short essays, plus an introduction and a preface. And they collectively tell many stories from early computing history, or, or really early digital history, as uh, it's, it's not simply computers, but now the the web and and these networks and these platforms and ideas have sprung forth from from digital technology that affect us every day and uh, we're going to be talking about several of those essays in this interview and you're gonna you're gonna see by the end of the interview why it's so significant for us to take a look at some of these early ideas these early technologies early platforms because they're, spoiler alert, they're still affecting us today, all of them. <laughs> and it's important for us, if we want to uh, build towards a, a, a better society or a better world that engages with technology in, in healthier ways, we have to understand where we have come from, where the technology uh, was developed, why, it was, why these decisions were made along the way. And this book... You are not expected to understand this. Does a good job of touring us through many, a couple dozen of these early ideas that are still affecting us today. Why don't we go ahead and listen to this interview? If you want to join in the live listener chat, go to wfmu.org, click playlist and comments. There are already listeners there chatting away. And uh, if you're listening in the future, just go to tectonic.fm, T E C H, tonic.fm. And again, January 30, 2023, click the playlist link and you can listen to, or you can both listen to the show, but you can also read through the playlist comments and there are links to the book and Tori Bosch as well on that playlist page. Here's the interview with Tori Bosch here on Tectonic on WFMU. Bosch, welcome to Tectonic. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you on the show, Tori. I really enjoyed reading your book. You are not expected to understand this, how 26 lines of code changed the world. I just like saying the title of that book. <laughs> <laughs> it came from a, a comment in early Unix code. One of the Unix engineers was explaining to users that this piece of the code is really complicated, but don't worry, you don't need to know it. But then they wrote this comment that 
comes across a little differently. You are not expected to understand this. Absolutely. And, you know, it became sort of a rallying cry for programmers who found this and took it to mean not, as you say, that don't worry about this, it's not important. They took it more to mean that we speak a language, we write a language, several languages that other people don't understand. So it became this sort of like motto and sort of a, a memento of pride and an, an expression of their ability to understand something that other folks don't. It's of course a little bit provocative as a title for the book, but you know the real goal of the book is to help people understand that you don't actually need to know how to code to really think deeply about the way code affects our lives. And it's really important to have sort of a, a working understanding of the way coding works and the humans behind the code as um, the comment shows, and then also as the people who seized on the comment as a motto demonstrate too. This book is arranged in short chapters. There's 26 in all, plus a preface by you and an introduction by Ellen Ullman. Each of the 26 essays refers to a different piece of code. Some of them are literally about a line of code. Others, you take it a little more metaphorically. But as you say, the book is trying to get people to think a little more about code. This is you writing, because code has, in infinite ways, changed how we live in the world for better, worse, or somewhere in between. And that's a good fit with tectonic Tory because we're often talking about how different kinds of technologies affect us for better or for worse. I'll admit, usually I cover the worst part, but sometimes for better. <laughs> and it's nice that this book has a blend. But right in the introduction by Ellen Ullman, she writes something in passing that I, th that I wanted to flag because it shows that this is not just a random walk down memory lane about the history of computing technology. Ellen is writing about failure in her introduction. She starts actually with a, a quote that she heard from a mentor of hers early on, you will need the willingness to fail all the time, as a programmer that is. And she writes in this essay that the failure that we face with technology is not just that of programmers who are struggling to make the program work. It's also the failures that cascade on the rest of us when the technology does not work right. And as Ullman writes, the fate of humanity hangs in the balance. The internet has the dark power to ignite global war by accident or by design. As that was one of the main thoughts in your introduction, I thought that set the stage for this book to be interesting and entertaining, but also serving as a warning to us about what technology can bring to the world. Yeah, that's an absolutely perfect description of it. Um, Ellen has been a programmer for decades. She's the author of a really beautiful memoir called My Life in Code. So she's someone who has been thinking really deeply about coding for you know, longer than I have been alive, which is extremely impressive. I think that that idea of failure sets up the book really well because you know, one of the things that the book illustrates through all of these case studies in the essays is that failure in coding can look like a whole lot of different things. There's bugs, which Ellen spends a great deal of time writing about. The fact that you can never, you know, exterminate all of the bugs from your code. It will always be there. And when executives try, at one point, she writes about executives at a startup saying, well, when will all the bugs be gone from the code? And the answer is never. You will never find them all. Some of them won't emerge until 
you know, there are very specific environmental circumstances um, in the way the code is operating. So there's those kinds of failures that just kind of pop up. There's also failures, though, in a sort of more societal way. You know, code can operate properly, but there's maybe a failure on the part of the programmers or the company to sort of understand how that code will then operate in the real world, especially in the way it will reflect human biases and decision making and sort of, you know, short term thinking, replacing long term thinking. And I think that thinking about those failures and the fact that all coding will involve a great deal of failure in one way or another in ways that the programs will learn about or will never learn about is a really important lesson that the book offers. We should also point out that the essays are each written by a different author. So you're the editor, Ellen Ullman wrote the introduction, and then you have 26 essays written by one or more authors, each of them. So it's a whole collection of very interesting people writing their thoughts about these influential pieces of code. Yeah. And it's one thing that's really great about it is there are 26 essays written by, I think it's 29 people total, something like that, um, including Ellen, who come from very, very different backgrounds. So we have technologists, we have people who, like Ellen, have written lots of code. Uh, we have historians, we have journalists. Um, there's a great reported essay on the creation of the Facebook like, which was known at the time at Facebook as the awesome button. And so we take, you know, we've got philosophers of technology. So each chapter comes from a very different approach. And I think that helps make sure that um, we're, you know, hitting these big ideas in, in different kinds of ways and with different kinds of storytelling. And really at the heart, all of these are stories. So they're stories of people. And I think that's one thing that helps make the book stand out a bit is that it's not just about the technology, it's about the humans who created it and the humans whose lives have been affected by it. Soon after that introduction we talked about with Ellen Ullman, where she's talking about the dark possibility of war, you have this very fun chapter, ironically called Space War, uh, which has nothing to do with war uh, directly anyway. Space War, for anyone who doesn't know, is essentially the very first video game. And so this is a chapter that tells a story, as you say, about the creation of the first video game on a PDP-1. That was the Digital Equipment Corporation, the DEC computer back in the 60s. And Space War was created at MIT in the EE department, the Electrical Engineering Department. The Tech Model Railroad Club got involved. A lot of interesting parts here. So how did Space War come to be, Tori? Space War is just such a delightful example. Um, it's also worth noting it's a game that you can play online now if you want you know, a really retro video game experience. Um, it's a two-player game in which two people are basically just trying to combat each other in space. It's exactly what it sounds like. And it was the brainchild of a group of um, computer scientists, graduate student, uber geeks uh, in the early 1960s. I mean, and what's really wonderful about Space War is it illustrates, uh, first of all, the collaborative nature of coding, how great coding projects, great programs come from groups of people. It's not, you know, one genius in a hoodie working, you know, into the night alone. It's people working together. It's people joking together. You know, there's lots of making fun of each other. And it's also a great example of of iteration. So they went through a whole lot of different versions of Space War before they landed on what we now use. Even that, they never really called the final version. It took years. 
The other thing that's really remarkable about Space War is that when this group of programmers created it for this um, $100,000 computer, which was very cheap at the time, they then ended up sharing it with the manufacturer of the machine. And the manufacturer started shipping the machine with Space War on it because it became a way, first of all, to prove that the piece of equipment worked. You know, if you can play your game on this, you can also run your accounting calculations on it or whatever it was being used for at the time. Um, but it also just sort of demonstrated that computers can be fun. Until then, they had really been these business machines, these war machines in World War II and um, the Korean War, for instance. Space War showed that there was potential for tinkering, there was potential for joy, um, and really just set the stage for computers as things that are part of our lives instead of just kind of like in the background, I think. If I remember right from the chapter, when Deck put Space War in the code to be shipped to other clients, there were some questions. What, what are we doing sending a game around with our very important $100,000 computer? And very soon they realized, as you said, that this, no, no, this was a positive. It showed that it worked and that it could be fun, but also, hey, you're not only getting this business machine, we're also going to throw in this game. And I wonder if that became part of the sales pitch eventually, that the PDP-1 comes with this. Uh, yeah, I believe so. I believe so, you know, and there was this idea that, hey, when you're not running all your calculations on this, you can have some fun too. And, you know, it was something special. No one had seen a video game before. And so it was the kind of thing that people could gather around the machine and watch each other play and really experience something that no one else in the world had done before at that point. And that started a trend of video games being used as a leading force in developing hardware. I mean, for a long time, I remember in the 90s and 2000s, Intel and AMD, these chip companies, were trying to figure out how can we get people to buy more chips that need to be stronger. And it always came back to the video games. If you get this better chip, you'll be able to render Doom or whatever at a higher resolution. And it was interesting to read this chapter and to see Oh, that started in the 1960s with the PDP-1. Let's move on to another chapter. Speaking of space, there was a chapter in which you have two authors telling the story of one of the first computers actually in space, not in, a, not in video game space, but in real life. This is chapter 8, Apollo 11, Do Bailout, written by Ellen R. Stofen and Nick Partridge, both at the Smithsonian so this was Apollo 11, obviously uh, going to make the moon landing. And soon before the actual landing occurred, they're watching the dashboard of this, what we would call a very primitive computer, and code 1202 comes up. What happened, Tori, with code 1202? Well, it's just, it's less than eight minutes. I want to say seven and a half minutes or something like that before they're supposed to land on the surface of the moon. And all of a sudden, this alarm goes off. And I mean, imagine how terrifying that is. You know, you are about to land on the moon and a scary alarm is going off. The astronauts had learned about a bunch of the errors that could be thrown up by the uh, Apollo guidance computer. But this one they weren't familiar with. And there is a moment in which they very nearly said, we have to call this off because, of course, safety was the first priority uh, on Apollo 11, you know, they wanted to make sure the astronauts got home and 
this scary alarm is going off. It turned out, spoiler alert, that there was no real problem. It was an error message that really actually meant that the um, the AGC, the Apollo guidance computer, was working properly. These were, by modern standards, you know, a pretty low-powered computer. Um, as one person who worked on the calculations for the the trajectory of the mission later put it, the AGC was less powerful than a voice-recorded birthday card, which is just mind-boggling. And that's not to put down the AGC. That's to say how impressive it was. Because with less processing power than a birthday card, it was able to get people to the moon and back safely. So there was a way built into the AGC that if too many functions were being performed at one time, it would start to turn off the non-essential ones. The error message basically just meant, hey, FYI, we're turning off some other stuff. Don't worry, we got it. But nobody really knew that. And so uh, the astronauts had to call back to Earth and say, hey, guys, what's up with this? Um, Very few people even in mission control knew what the error message meant. They finally found the one engineer who knew it. And the engineer said, hey, it's fine, really. And to their credit, the astronauts trusted the engineer. They knew that it had all been built so carefully and thoughtfully um, that if the engineers behind it said, we're confident this is fine, then it was fine. And it ended up being correct. But I mean, imagine what a terrifying moment that was. I also enjoyed this amusing bit that the authors put into the essay. They wrote, the programmer's notes to one another in the code read like a Talmudic commentary through the lens of 1960s slang. So here they're talking about the comments. An instruction to reposition an antenna is labeled, crank the silly thing around in order to safely continue, quote, off to see the wizard. One section that made it into the final version of the code was marked, temporary, I hope, hope, hope. <laughs> and that's the kind of comment that you would see today in all kinds of code where people are saying, I hope this is temporary. But it's interesting that these clever comments and these last minute fixes were even showing up back in the Apollo 11 computer. And also, I mean, I don't know about you, but when I think about 60s and 70s missions to the moon, you know, I think of the movie Apollo 13 and I think of these extremely serious people who have the weight of the universe on their shoulders. Um, and to see these sort of like glimmers of joy and humor that they're sharing with each other is just such like a great insight into the fact that these are people who were doing very important work, but also sort of enjoying themselves and also reflective of the time. There's also a comment, for instance, that refers to the Black Power movement. So, you know, through this code, through these comments, we're getting real glimpses of, of humanity and society. Yeah, there was a lot of mentions of the 1960s in these essays, which makes sense because that was the dawn of digital computers. But you're right. A lot of what we think of today when we think of early computing is what we've seen in movies or documentaries depicting that time. And getting a glimpse into the code itself is an interesting lens to understand what it was like in the lives and work of some of these people, which I think was part of your aim in putting this book together, right? So it worked. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And, you know, 
one thing that you can really take away from the book too is how many of these decisions made in the 50s, 60s, and 70s are still with us today. The, you know, even the literal code in many cases is still with us. If you use an ATM, um, it is using code that was written in COBOL, a language um, that few people use today, but is still powering a lot of these systems. I mean, and that's mind blowing to me. You have an essay in the book on the genesis of COBOL, and that was developed by a, a female engineer, right? Exactly. Jean Samet, I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly, who is just an extraordinary woman. I mean, I think most of us who are interested in the history of computing have heard about Grace Hopper, but you know, Grace Hopper worked with a lot of other brilliant people, and Jean was certainly one of them. You know, Without Jean, we wouldn't have what is basically some of the first clear and accessible coding. Um, of course, you know, if you look at COBOL today, you won't feel like it's clear and accessible. But at the time, it was certainly huge. And it helped kind of stave off this crisis that computing companies were facing. Um, you know, there were concerns that they were never going to be able to come up with standards. Every computing company was creating software in a slightly different way. And so this creation of COBOL was really foundational to computers the way they work today. And, you know, she was someone who at first, after she graduated from college, you know, had to look in the women's section of the job advertising. Um, you know, so she was able to overcome a lot. And it's also a great demonstration of how foundational women were to the early years of computing. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. We are halfway through my interview with Tori Bosch, the editor of a new book called You Are Not Expected to Understand This, How 26 Lines of Code Change the World, published by Princeton University Press. And as you can hear, Tori is explaining how many of these decisions and even these snippets of code from 60, almost 70 years ago are still affecting us and sometimes still in operation. And that becomes a theme that will develop further in the second half of the interview as we get into some of the significance of these essays. If you'd like to join in the live listener chat, go to WFMU.org, click playlist and comments. And uh, you can also in the future Go to the Tectonic one-page website, tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H-tonic.fm. Let's go ahead and listen to the second half of my interview with Tori Bosch, talking about you are not expected to understand this, here on Tectonic on WFMU. I know that one of the blurbs you have on the book is written by Clive Thompson, who's a past guest of the show. Clive came on Tectonic a couple of years ago to talk about his book, Coders, which includes some of this early history of women as programmers. And listeners can go back in the archives to listen to that. It's very, it's very interesting. But speaking of early decisions that are still with us today, I want to talk about an essay that Brian McCullough writes about in Chapter 12. Brian talks about Vannevar Bush's 1945 essay called As We May Think, an incredibly influential essay. He's talking about the possibility of linking ideas with computers 
That idea was picked up by Ted Nelson in the mid-1960s, so about 20 years later, Ted Nelson is working on his Project Xanadu, and your essay by Brian McCullough writes, Nelson proposed the link as a software concept to organize data by associations more amenable to human thought. And then he writes that Douglas Engelbart picked it up, or actually independently, Douglas Engelbart implemented something like a link. And then using Ted Nelson and Douglas Engelbart's work as inspiration, finally, Tim Berners-Lee invents the World Wide Web, and we have the hyperlink. It's just interesting that the links that we all click on or tap on now stemmed from an original idea back in the 1940s. Yeah, and Brian refers to the hyperlink as the atomic unit of the digital age, which I think is just the perfect encapsulation, right? I mean, how is there an internet without a hyperlink? It also, though, to me, speaks to this bigger idea that, you know, sometimes it feels like these things are inevitable. Like, of course, we have links in the internet, but there was no, of course, about that. You know, there's no reason why people had to you know, definitely put these things together. What it really is, is this sort of culmination of brilliant minds thinking about the same troubling issue, which is how do we organize human thought? Another benefit of this hyperlink is the benefit of interoperability, which was one of the main features of the World Wide Web, because before the web, and I remember this time, you could not easily connect computers together. The hyperlink allows us to click one link to get to any kind of data, text, audio, video, or anything else. And that interoperability is a really important feature of the internet. But you have another essay in the book by Charles Dewan, who's a postdoc at Cornell Tech, who writes about the threat to interoperability these days. It's because of market forces. And I'm, I'm going to reveal what the essay is about here in a second, but because it's about interoperability. But here the hyperlink has promised to connect everyone and everything. But Charles Dewan writes, non-interoperability in technology today often arises more deviously, forced incompatibility designed to secure market domination. And an easy example of this is the Microsoft Word file format. It doesn't play very well with others. It doesn't like to bring in competing word processor formats. And the reason Microsoft wants the Word format to be non-interoperable is to secure the dominance of Microsoft Word as the one word processor that people like to use. We could talk separately about how well that's worked, but this is just a good example of how companies can force incompatibility on everyone in order to protect their business interests. And that is counter to the original design of the web by Tim Berners-Lee. Exactly. And I mean, this is sort of a tension I think we see throughout the book, too. You know, there's lots of essays that talk about a push for an open Internet by innovators, by users, by everyday folks, um, at the same time that these giant companies are consolidating their power, are finding new ways to profit, um, and are sort of trying to push us into these walled gardens, um, whether that is the Microsoft Office Suite ecosystem or Facebook um, at the expense of blogs. 
For instance, um, I remember a really rich blogosphere before <laughs> Facebook and other social media platforms took over that I, I really miss. So that tension that we see going back, you know, a very long time, you know, even there's glimmers of it, even in the Space Wars chapter. Now we should say what Charles Duan's essay is about. It's called A Failure to Interoperate the Lost Mars Climate Orbiter. Some people know this story already, but it was 1999. There's the Mars Climate Orbiter entering the Mars atmosphere after a long journey from Earth, and all of a sudden it's destroyed. And so there was a long investigation because this is a very expensive <laughs> piece of hardware to lose. $145 million in 1999 dollars. That's a lot. And what they found was, as the essay title says, it was a failure to interoperate. I hear a little bit of cool hand Luke in this. What we have here is a failure to communicate. That should have been the title. <laughs> yeah. The problem was that two different parts of code were using different unit types. One part of the software used imperial units, pound force seconds. It was supposed to be using metric units of Newton seconds. And of course, when the software passed the numbers with the wrong units, everything went haywire and that's why it was destroyed. And so it's just an interesting example of how lining up systems to be interoperable is a better idea than shutting them out with incompatibility. Yeah. And I mean, really, if there had just been one line of code to multiply one number, the imperial units by 4.45, it all would have worked. But that missing line, I mean, and something else that's really fascinating about it is one part of the code was written by NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory and one part by contractor Lockheed Martin. Um, and when the orbiter disappeared, there was a big investigation and JPL said, hey, this was Lockheed Martin's fault. And Lockheed Martin said, hey, this was JPL's fault. And as Charles writes about, you know, in a way they were sort of both right and sort of both wrong. Because one problem with these kinds of transitions is that it can become no one's responsibility. And that idea of how to bridge that, especially when you're sort of atomizing the work this way by different groups, is really challenging. I got to push back here. I'm I'm with JPL. I think it was Lockheed Martin's fault because JPL provided Lockheed Martin with a spec and said, this is the, we're using metric units. Lockheed Martin says, but JPL sent us an example and it was an imperial units. Okay. Engineers, if you have an example <laughs> with one unit and a spec with another unit, which one takes precedence? First of all, Lockheed Martin immediately should have brought up a question, hey, you have two sets of units here, which one do you want us to do? But in the absence of that conversation, you always go with the spec. You never go with an example. <laughs> and also, I mean, we're talking space flight here. How often are you really using Imperial? You know, metric is the international scientific system. So yeah, I mean, I agree it's all a little bit silly, but when it comes to all this contractor stuff um, and liability, yes, it gets hairy for sure. Okay, speaking of responsibility, there's one last essay I wanted to bring up. This might have been my favorite essay. Chapter 15 is called The Pop-Up Ad, The Code That Made the Internet Worse. <laughs> it's written by Ethan Zuckerman, who's well known among some web people. These days he's at UMass Amherst. He, Ethan Zuckerman, is the inventor of the pop-up ad. 
back in 1997 when Tripod.com was the big startup, and I remember those days very well. Zuckerman was tasked with finding a way to give advertisers exposure without directly associating them with the contents of the web page, which could be something the advertiser didn't want to be associated with. So he said, well, why don't we put the advertiser's logo in a separate window that kind of floats above the web page? So no one actually thinks that Nike is interested in whatever the nonsense is on this web page. Thus started our current advertising hellscape of today's internet. Ethan writes this very thoughtful piece in the essay about who's responsible in the end for making the internet worse, because obviously it, was, it wasn't just him. He takes some of the blame, but he writes, maybe it was Google and surveillance capitalism, as Shoshana Zuboff wrote, and she's been on the show talking about her book. Great book. She's so great. Maybe it was also, as Zuckerman writes, venture capitalists who rewarded rapid user growth above all other factors. Maybe it was regulators who haven't cracked down enough on bad behavior. Maybe it was computer science professors who gave little thought toward ethics and values. Or, Zuckerman writes, countless engineers who made bad design choices in trying to navigate a set of business requirements they didn't think to question people like me. You don't often hear people wrestling with their own complicity in the system that they've helped build. And I thought it was helpful for him to note all of the different roles that people have played in making the internet today, which is, I mean, the advertising-soaked, surveillance-soaked internet that we have today. Uh, a lot of people have responsibility. Absolutely. And kudos to Ethan for writing about this. As he writes in the essay, he originally wrote it as sort of a throwaway line in a 4,000-word essay for The Atlantic. A very wise editor at The Atlantic spotted it and sort of spun it out into its own separate thing. And you know, now Ethan is being a responsible innovator and in trying to think about the role he played in this internet in which he really was just a cog, as as you say. You know, it's he was just one part of a much, much bigger system that has evolved in ways that perhaps all of us should have anticipated and no one could have in many ways. But you know, he's not really the one responsible. Nevertheless, whenever Ethan writes about this now, or whenever someone, you know, re-aggregates the original article from the Atlantic. He gets death threats, like serious death threats, not even just joking ones from people who kind of now hold him personally responsible for the way the Internet has gone. And it, it's so strange and disappointing to see how someone trying to grapple honestly with their role in this much bigger system ends up then getting this kind of attention rather than people thinking about the much bigger market forces that Shoshana writes about in Surveillance Capitalism. Exactly. And Ethan Zuckerman continues to do good work looking at alternative models there at UMass Amherst. He should be on the show sometime. I admire what he's doing. Oh, I mean, the work he's doing is so important and so interesting. I, I can't recommend his thinking on these issues and his work on these issues highly enough. I'm sorry to hear that he gets death threats. I mean, I'm sorry to hear that anyone would get, would get death threats uh, for this. But if we want to talk about culpability. It's definitely not the people who tried something at the very beginning, not knowing what would come out of it. It's much more culpable for someone today who knows what they're after, 
and continues to perpetuate or even amplify these bad practices for personal gain, those are the people who I call out on this show, sometimes individually, but you know, the, the CEOs of these big tech companies, but more often just whole classes of people. If you have power and you're misusing it and you know that it's going to harm others and you're doing it for personal gain, you're responsible for that. Absolutely. I mean, there's another essay in the book about the Volkswagen emissions scandal in which a single engineer in a PowerPoint presentation, because all evil now goes back to PowerPoint, I suppose, in one way or another. You know what they say, Tori? Power corrupts. PowerPoint corrupts, absolutely. (laughs) So in 2007, this Volkswagen engineer said, hey, we've got these diesel cars. We want to sell them as green friendly, but actually they're really not very green at all. But you know what we can do is we can, you know, insert some code so the car can detect if it's be if its emissions are being tested and then change the emissions. And so that was like that's a culpable, a personal culpable moment, right? That is someone making a decision that helps the bottom line while hurting the environment and perhaps, as one study suggests, leading to people's deaths. You know, that's very different than a, an engineer who's just sort of trying to get through the day and not explicitly trying to do bad, or as you say, the CEOs are the worst, the bigger system. That essay was about Volkswagen was chapter 23, the Volkswagen emissions scandal, how digital systems can be used to cheat, written by Lee Vinsel, who's an STS professor at Virginia Tech. I thought that was a great essay as well. Just imagining what it must have been like in that conference room when the engineer said, hey, boss, I think I've got a way to skirt some of these these green regulations. And the boss says, that's a cheating. That's a great idea. Let me run it up the chain. And all the way up through senior leadership within Volkswagen, everyone approved it. That shows the rot in a corrupt organization uh, that not a single person went to the press, quit their job and said, we're doing this horrible thing. But what I learned from Vincel's essay is that Volkswagen, not to dump on them too much, they were not the first company to do exactly this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in the 1970s, the EPA found that some automakers were using mechanical devices to shut down emission controls under certain circumstances. You know, so basically they could have the controls a lot of the time, except for when it was inconvenient. And then, you know, let's override them. Um, In the early 1990s, Cadillacs had a a chip that would turn off the emissions if the heat or the air conditioning was on. We've got decades of these companies trying to find first mechanical and then software ways to get around their legal and, and ethical environmental responsibilities. And because the systems are so opaque, everything is just stored in, inside this tiny chip. It's very hard to tell when someone is cheating. And what I come away with from your book, in addition to having learned a lot, Tori, is what Ellen Ullman says in the introduction, that the fate of humanity hangs in the balance of how we engage with technology, how we build technology, how we react to it. That's no joke. When bits of code can so easily cheat and cause harm and even death, or can bring good outcomes, it's incumbent on all of us who are involved in any way with technology to make the right decision. It's even more important now to make these decisions than before, because 
if we don't make the right decisions, like the senior leadership at Volkswagen uh, didn't make the right decisions, and you multiply that by the number of outcomes that technology is creating every day, we've got a real problem on our hands. I hope that people will take away from this book an inspiration to go forth and create better technology for the right reasons. Yeah, I mean, my hope is really that this book will be useful for people who work in technology on a day-to-day basis. You know, I'm I'm not from a technical background myself, though I edit technology and coverage of technology for Slate Magazine and have for a number of years now and have learned so much from brilliant people. But this sort of weight that people who work within tech have to shoulder, this idea that you know, you feel like you're just a tiny cog, but really you're part of this much bigger system and you have a responsibility to think about your work in the short and long term, I think is huge. And then I also really hope that this book will be appealing and understandable, despite the title of You Were Not Expected to Understand This, to people who aren't technical, because the idea here really is to sort of balance the technical with the sort of bigger picture. And so, you know, the goal is to help people understand that if you may not understand, you know, how to write JavaScript yourself, but thinking about and understanding the process by which these technical products enter our lives is really important. The book is called You Are Not Expected to Understand This, How 26 Lines of Code Changed the World, published by Princeton University Press, edited by my guest today, Tori Bosch. Tori, thanks again for being on the show today and hope you'll be back sometime. Thank you so much. It's a real honor to be here. Thank you. tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I will continue to be your host for the remaining 15 minutes of the show. And then I want you to stay tuned for the great Dave Mandel. His show, It's Complicated, is coming up at the top of the hour. It's a prog rock show. You should listen to it. Dave is great. We just heard my interview with Tori Bosch, editor of a new book, called You Are Not Expected to Understand This, How 26 Lines of Code Changed the World. And I hope that interview gave a good overview of how those lines of code did, in fact, change the world. Just like it said on the tin, we're talking about Apollo 11 landing computer code and Volkswagen emission scandals and space war and everything in between. Probably the most recent phenomenon covered in the book is the pop-up ad as uh, written about by Ethan Zuckerman. I'm going to have a few comments about that here in a moment, but uh, I I just want to say thanks to Tori for being on the show. And uh, if you are interested in taking a look at the book, There is a link to it on the playlist. Go to WFMU.org, click Playlist and Comments, and uh, and you can see the link to Princeton University Press there. Incidentally, there's also a link to a very different kind of uh, writing that Tori Bosch just published in Slate uh, just 
two days ago on January 28. It's a uh, it's it's fiction. It's a, a sci-fi-ish short story called Big Feet by Tori Bosch that uh, that ran in Slate, and you can read that. Just click the link and read that. So Tori is um, is both presenting us with nonfiction essays, but is also exploring the fiction side of things by uh, imagining. Well, you can read the story about Big Feet and see what she's imagining. Uh, there's also a link to Space War, which is online now, as, as Tori mentioned in the interview. And uh, it is a two-player game. If you click that link, it's, it's free. I don't know if there's surveillance hooks on, on the webpage or not, but at least it's free and you don't have to register to, to play. But you do need to bring a friend who will huddle with you at your keyboard and uh, each of you get to control one of the two ships, and there is a um, there's a gravity source like a, a, a star I think in the middle, and uh, you want to you want to try to avoid that. Pro tip: avoid the star in the middle of space war. <laughs> but you can enjoy playing space war as the very more or less the very first video game for free. Clicking through from the WFMU playlist. Uh, so the as I said at the beginning of the interview. Um, the main theme that I was driving towards in that interview was this idea of responsibility because here we have these 26 essays and an introduction that are taking us from, as Story said, the, the, all the way back to the 1950s and 1960s, uh, which admittedly is not the beginning of computing. I mean, if you go back to my recent interview with Rachel Ignatovsky, which I think was in uh, December. Uh, Rachel is an illustrator and author who, who created a book called uh, The History of Computers, so The History of the Computer, sorry, um, where sh she takes it all the way back to the Stone Age and prehistoric times and then goes through uh, Jacquard's loom and Charles Babbage and, and all the rest. Uh, but when, when we get to Tori Bosch's essays and we're talking, she is starting with code like in the Apollo, uh, lunar module, uh, we're looking at code that at, at this point is 60 plus years old. And as Tori points out, many of those decisions are still with us. A lot of the code is still running. As she said, COBOL is, is an old language but it's still with us. Every time you use an ATM, you're likely to be drawing on COBOL uh, code uh, that, 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 was written, that was written decades ago. And that's a good uh, case in point for the, uh, the, the, this idea that the decisions that we make when we create technology last a lot longer than we might expect. It's like that comment in the in the lunar module code, whoever whoever uh, wrote that in the in the uh, in the uh, guidance computer, the the comment said temporary. I hope hope hope. How often programmers? How often have you seen something like that in commented code? Oh, this is just a kludge. I'm just going to use this, and and we'll we'll fix it later. And then you know, years go by, and the kludge is still in the code. That's what happens with digital technology. So that was that was the 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 first baseline point that I took away from the book that I wanted to amplify here because we're often seeing in, um, in, in the shows 
that that I'm were the books, the articles that I'm covering here on Tectonic, that the the outcomes that we're seeing in the world often have historical precedent that are they're defined by code or business models or politics or who knows what that go back years, sometimes decades. And so if we understand the longevity of the technology that we're creating uh, or even the, the decisions that we make, even if you're not a programmer, you still make decisions of what technology you're going to use, which apps you're going to use, which platforms you're going to use. Those decisions have staying power much further than we would expect, and it, it, and it gets pushed on to future generations. So that's why Ethan Zuckerman's essay I thought was so important, because if we understand the issue of longevity, then we can understand this, this issue of responsibility. Everybody who's involved in perpetuating, maintaining, or, or, or even launching some kind of technology has some degree of responsibility for what happens next in future years and decades. And the calculus is very simple. The more power you have, the more responsibility you have. And, uh, and, and the fact is, friends, all of us have a little bit of power. All of us have a little bit, even if you're not a programmer, even if you don't work in technology, all of us have a little bit of agency and we have a little bit of power, a little, to decide what we're going to use and what we're going to share and what we're going to um, encourage our friends to use and so on. Of course, if you're in technology and you're building the tech, you have much more responsibility. So the, the, my suggestion here is that we think carefully about the technological society that we want because we have a little bit of agency. We have a little bit of choice in the technological society that we're building together. If you have power to get off of some of these toxic platforms that are harming others, you really should do that. If you, ha if you can, I've said this for years, you know, get off Facebook if you can. Some people can't. They can't afford to or for whatever reason. But if you can, what are you doing on there? Get off. Um, the, the homework that I assign at the end of every show gives you some suggestions. Uh, each of those comes with an underlying, if you can, get off of this, get off of that. And try to find alternatives that are not as toxic, <laughs> that maybe have business models that are not based on exploitation. Uh, and there are alternatives here and there. And I'm going to try to cover some of those in upcoming shows at some point so that we're not just uh, talking about what we shouldn't do on Tectonic, but trying to point to what we should do. Uh, but it's, every, it's everyone's responsibility. And so when we look back in a couple of years or a couple of decades, what was it like back in the early 2020s when you were laying down this infrastructure that we are now still uh, working with? Why, for example, does every vacuum cleaner have to take our photo and our video and map our house and take photos of us in intimate moments and send it up to some, some uh, trillion dollar corporation for processing. Well, when did that start? Oh, I remember that was back in the early 2020s when Roomba started taking pictures of people and everybody thought it was cute and funny. And they, they, took, uh, they took videos of their cats um, riding around on Roombas. It was, it was cute and everyone loved it. Anyway, Roombas stuck because everyone used it, everyone bought it, everyone 
told their friends about it. Yeah, that's why every vacuum cleaner in the world now in the year, what are we at, 2053, uh, is a a contributing factor to our ongoing surveillance hellscape. Yeah, I remember the early days. Gosh, I guess we shouldn't have used Roomba. Oh, well, we're stuck with it now. You know, that's and that's that's essentially the plot line of every dystopian novel and and sci-fi movie that you see. They take the current trends and they amplify it out several decades with the premise that people had the chance to change their ways and they didn't. And we have a chance, friends. We have a chance. Everybody has a little bit of power. And if you work in technology, you have much more power, by which I mean responsibility to do the right thing. It's not just your paycheck that's on the line. It's future generations that are going to have to deal with whatever surveillance, exploitative, deceptive platforms that people are putting down. We're all going to have to deal with those. And eventually, we're going to have to dismantle them. And it's going to be much harder if we go several more years with people building these things. So uh, I guess I should wrap up pretty soon. I'm going to give you that homework. Uh, is there something that I put a link into this? There's a study out of MIT, speaking of uh, things that we've decided to do with our, with our time and talents and technology. This, uh, this, this uh, uh, academic paper is called Dense Pose from Wi-Fi. And there's a popular mechanics piece, I need to put this on the playlist, from January 19, uh, just a few days ago called Scientists Can Now Use Wi-Fi to See Through People's Walls. And it's, it's reporting on this MIT study that's, that they have been working on this for years and they finally figured out how to use Wi-Fi signals to create three, I'm not making this up, 3D models of the people in the room with the Wi-Fi signal. Isn't that great? That we can now use Wi-Fi as a surveillance mechanism to spy on the people who are in a room with Wi-Fi, getting the 3D models so you can identify them, you can watch them as they move around. Oh, that's just wonderful. What a great use of our talent. Um, and I can, yes, I can think of many agencies and Defense Department projects that would probably be very interested in that. But I'm just thinking about, for normal people, are we ready to live in a world where our Wi-Fi routers are now spying on us. And I don't just mean the traffic, they're already spying on you, what traffic, uh, what search queries and so on, what web traffic you have. I mean spying on who is in the room. If you have kids, getting a 3D model of your kids and sending that over to who knows whom. That's the kind of world that we're building. If we don't take responsibility for the future outcomes of our actions, we have to think very carefully about this, about this this uh, planetary network, this tool that we're building together. Anyway, that's, that's, my, that's my message. Uh, we'll, see what, we'll see what comes up next week on Tectonic. Probably be something a little different. In the meantime, you are still listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County, and 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, friends, here's your homework. Avoid Apple, abandon Amazon, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get off Google. Have a great week, everybody, and stay tuned for Dave Mandel and It's Complicated.
Oh, <laughs> there we go. It's another installment of It's Complicated. My name is Dave Mandel. I'm here every Monday at this time, namely 7 to 8 p.m. here at WFMU. This show is called, again, It's Complicated. One hour, one full hour of Prague and Prague-adjacent music. Thanks for joining me this week. I'm going to start tonight's show with a couple of related things. Uh, the connection is, I guess, v- uh, very early 70s UK. There was a group, I'm going, to, I'm going to start with a group called Coliseum. Coliseum was really kind of a jazz rock group, but, uh, you know, they... they they get in a, a technicality as a, as a prog. They were kind of proggy, and uh, the members of Coliseum played with played with just everyone in the world, lots and lots of people. They were very active actually in the in the jazz scene in London, the, the in England in the late sixties, early seventies, which was an amazing scene, by the way. A lot of just fantastic jazz being made at that time. But they also played. Uh, a couple of guys, in, in, in particular John Heisman, drummer, and Dick Hextel-Smith, sax player. Um, they also played with this group that we're going to hear, Coliseum. And among other people, many other people, they played with Jack Bruce. They played on a bunch of Jack Bruce's uh, early solo albums. So we're going to hear a track from Coliseum. As I said, they're generally really kind of jazz, jazzy more than anything, but I'm going to play a track that's... Um, like a you know fake classical piece, which was a very proggy thing to do. Where is it? I'm just trying to find it right here. Hold on. And then following that, we're going to hear, as as mentioned, a Jack Bruce piece, Jack Bruce song um, from from the early '70s. A really, really, really interesting period. If you don't, if you're not familiar with Jack Bruce's early solo albums, get familiar with them. Like like tonight, right after the show. Get familiar with them. Uh, really, really great. And and Jack Bruce, Cream, in fact, his his band and Jack Bruce's material itself was. Um, I would say Jack Bruce was was a definite progenitor of Prague. Uh, a lot of Cream's stuff had all kinds of crazy time signatures going on. Uh, thanks to Jack Bruce and, and I guess Ginger Baker, the drummer. Uh, White Room, one of their biggest hits, was was. Uh, starts out in in five five four it's a kind of you know it was still still a pretty crazy thing to do on the radio in the late 60s anyway so we're gonna hear Coliseum we're gonna hear Jack Bruce on the Jack Bruce tune we're gonna hear um it features uh a drummer John Marshall from that same London you know, same UK scene and also Chris Spedding on guitar so I think that's enough for now um give me one second to fix this thing here and here we go ready yeah. okay. one two three <laughs> 